and welcome to the Android Central Podcast. My name is Daniel Bader. This week on the show, we are talking about a new phone from Qualcomm, sort of. It's a phone aimed at a very niche part of Qualcomm's fan base, and it's made not by Qualcomm itself, but by Asus. It's a one of its kind, the first of its kind, and I think it's quite interesting and there's a lot to talk about there. We also have a bunch of leaks of Samsung's upcoming products, including the Galaxy S21 FE. Um, and OnePlus has been accused of manipulating performance on its phones, uh, specifically the OnePlus 9 Pro, but it's not really benchmark manipulation, sort of. It's it's a weird one. This one I, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about. And then finally, we'll talk about another lawsuit against Google, this time uh, issued by a number of attorneys general against Google around the Play Store and its app billing policies, which are going to get more stringent later this year. So all that helped me talk about uh, all that is R. Wagner. Welcome back. Yo. Yo. How are you? Um, I'm good. There's going to be a thunderstorm that comes in about half an hour. So if you hear any thunder in me going, ah, on my end, that's that's what it is. Mm. Got it. Okay. It's not it's not you listening to critical critical role. It's uh it's time it's No, a no, it's it's me listening to a thunderstorm. <laughs> Cuz I'm in the closet which is two exterior walls, so if there's good rumblings, it will come through. Mm. All right. I look forward to that. And Alex Doby, all the way from across the pond. Um, how are you? I'm doing good. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's been uh, at least uh, at least a month or two, I think. So yeah, it's good to be back here. And no thunder here, but I am just uh, looking around and hoping the several phones behind me are actually set to mute. So if you hear anything from me, it'll probably be that. <laughs> You're swimming, but not in water in in smartphones. Absolutely. Um, I've been watching Wimbledon, which I know you are. You're nowhere near that because you're up up in the north, but um, it's been raining there all week, and I've been really bummed because it it has been pretty inconsistent. Um, so yeah, I I know the weather in London better than I do the weather here this week at least. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been kind of hit and miss, um, and uh, of course at Wembley last night as well. So um, yeah. Oh right, yes. Congrats, congrats yeah, on your victory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your unforeseen victory. <laughs> we'll see. People might okay. be watching one of many this year. <laughs> yeah, people might be listening to this after after Sunday. So we'll have, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we that's fair. To, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, see. We, we'll need to do two cuts of this podcast. Temper your expectations. Nah. All right, let's let's go. Um, we'll talk about this Qualcomm Snapdragon Insiders phone. So, Alex, I mean, this is an interesting product because it's. I mean, inside baseball, Qualcomm was the company that briefed us on this, not Asus. This is very much a, the messaging around it is being directed by Qualcomm. And yet the company is going out of its way to insist that it is not a Qualcomm branded phone. It's an Asus branded phone made by and maintained by Asus, but it's a showcase for Qualcomm technology made for these 1.6 million or so Qualcomm insiders that are passionate about the company itself. Um, the Snapdragon Insider program recently launched in March. It's free to join, and it's basically for anybody to be a part of the Qualcomm community, 
I guess it's a weird, this, this like weird um, duality where Qualcomm wants to be seen both as a technology provider, but also as a mainstream consumer tech brand. So what do you make of this? I'm not quite sure what to make of it. And I think Jerry Hildenbrand probably had the best sort of quick summary of, of what exactly this is on um, on our site today. But uh, looking from the face of it, it's not really clear whether this is a, a Qualcomm phone or an Asus phone. It's not really clear whether it's a developer phone or a consumer phone. And it's not really clear what anyone's trying to do with this thing here in terms of just the spec sheet and the design. Um, you know, it looks like an Asus ROG Phone 5 that swapped out for Snapdragon branding, um, except if you look at the specs, they're a little bit different. It's got a smaller battery, faster charging. Um, the the key thing with this, though, is that it effectively has all, it's, all the Qualcomm stuff is enabled. It's you know Any feature that the Snapdragon 888 can do is enabled and dialed up to 11, pretty much, on this phone. You know, Just look at the, the lift, list of uh, RF band support on this phone. It um, I think has the most 5G bands of any phone in the world. Um, but that also applies to other areas of the phone where you have uh, audio features, uh, video recording features turned on in this phone for Qualcomm because it is their showcase for um, you know everything that that you can do on their latest chipset. And of course, that's in theory good for enthusiasts, good for developers because you can buy this thing. Okay, it's fifteen hundred dollars, but if you w- then want to target all the other eight 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 chipsets out there, whichever features they might have enabled, then you have this phone that has all the stuff turned on. Um, but I do think the messaging around this has been a little bit muddled and the, there is a certain amount of what the hell is this thing? Who, who's it for? What is it for? Why does it exist uh, around the announcement today? All right. When you look at this, I mean, the phone itself, as Alex said, is is it's sort of a modified ROG Phone 5. Um, it's $1,500. It's Yikes. got a Snapdragon 888, not an 888 And we asked why in our briefing. And they said, well, this has been in development for a long time. We didn't have a chance to replace it with the newer SKU, et cetera, whatever. Um, 16 gigs of RAM, 512 gigs of storage. It's got a QHD plus AMOLED display at 144 hertz refresh rate. Uh, It's got a triple camera setup, although the sensors themselves are pretty lackluster for 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the first phone that showcases Snapdragon sound, which if you recall, was this program announced earlier this year, back in March, where... Once again, it's Qualcomm showcasing the full stack of of support for a particular technology, in this case, wireless earbuds, where it creates the codec, it pairs it with a software experience on the phone, and then it partners with particular manufacturers, in this case, Master and Dynamic, to build that experience into it's earbud itself. So you can know that when you see that Snapdragon sound badge on the box, you're getting the best possible Qualcomm experience. And yet when we think of Qualcomm, I think we have a pretty good idea of what that is. When the average consumer goes to a store, a Best Buy, and sees this on the shelf with a Qualcomm Snapdragon sound badge, how much weight do you think that actually has in their purchase decision, if any? For regular people, absolutely none. Like, this is the first phone that has this, but more importantly, this is something that it only works with certain manufacturers because people, because uh, ma- uh, earbud manufacturers have to build for Qualcomm sound in order for it to work on the earbuds. And then you also need apps that support Qualcomm sound, which right now I think that's limited to Amazon Music. So it's one of those things of it could be cool, but it's one of those things of we need 
we need something to drive manufacturers and platform developers to actually enable this. Because so long as it's not enabled on the earbuds or the music service, doesn't matter what the phone has. Alex, Qualcomm has been tiptoeing around this idea that it's a consumer brand for at least half a decade now. And, you know, the inside baseball here is when Qualcomm hosts uh, press events, there's always a massive contingent of influencers that they sponsor to be at those events, to interview executives, to be a part of the show, trying to get the word out that Qualcomm is more than just a company that makes chips. And now in 2021, we have the Snapdragon Insider Program where the membership includes like contests, events, AMAs, um, things like that. How do you think it's doing in terms of achieving that goal of being a consumer brand? I think it's going to be slow going for a while. I think what, you know, they're eventually, you know, that their ideal situation might be sort of like your early 90s Intel Inside kind of thing where that was um, the, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the the fuel behind uh, you know the sort of PC revolution in, in the early nineties. Um, I don't think we're there quite yet because you know for most people with a phone you don't have a sticker on the side that says you know Qualcomm inside or whatever. Or, you know on some phones you have on the boot screen, but that's a, a separate thing. Um, but certainly they're, they're they're pushing ahead with this. They're trying. They certainly have enough money to to do that. Um, but like Ara said, um, whether it's phones or whether it's um, uh, you know audio, it's uh, you know it's going to take some more time and i think the average person still maybe they've heard of qualcomm depending on how technical they are um probably they don't know a whole lot about it besides the fact that it exists and it's in phones when you say um intel inside the first thing i think of is um annoying stickers that leave a residue on your laptop (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you noticed that sticker right you remember everyone remembers the little jingle that used to be in every pc ad back in the day um and I think that that's what they that's the kind of thing that they're aiming for with to have that kind of brand awareness. Um, but I remember Clippy. It doesn't mean that I remember it fondly. <laughs> so. That is true. That is true. There are good and bad types of nostalgia. That is the bad kind. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the question here is Qualcomm has been trying to have its cake and eat it too, being both a recognizable consumer brand and a partner to its manufacturer, um, manufacturers that it works with, and and the the tension really made itself apparent in this briefing, where every time somebody asked a question about the phone itself, Qualcomm was like, "Oh well, you know, we'd have to defer to ASUS on that question." But anytime the question was around the technology powering the phone, which is the phone, I mean, if you're talking if, about yeah. like an what is the ontological, you know, makeup of a of a phone in hand? Is it the 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 glass and the metal that the frame is is comprised of, or is it the silicon inside it? I mean, it's a, and it's a system on a chip, right? It, it's mostly, literally yeah. that. And Qualcomm keeps deferring to ASUS when it comes to the phone in hand, and that it just feels like there's this awkward tension that they're never really going to quite resolve as long as they're aiming to be a recognizable consumer brand while also making the bulk of its money selling selling SOCs and and um and modems and and you know baseband chips and antennas and Snapdragon sound bluetooth codecs to 
to companies as these turnkey solutions. Um, so all that being said, this is on sale now to Snapdragon Insiders. It's $1,500. It's basically a very expensive version of the ROG Phone 5 mixed in with some of the newer technologies that aren't really in a lot of phones. As Alex said, it's one of the first to support the, um, it, it has more 5G bands than any other phone. It has Wi-Fi 6E. It's got the newer version of the X60 5G modem that was just announced a couple of weeks ago. It comes with a pair of really nice master and dynamic earbuds in the box, which is pretty unusual for a phone, even I at mean, this price. I mean, for 1500 bucks. I mean, I don't really want to play with the phone that much. I want to play play with those earbuds. Right. Yeah. And And the reason that there's a rear fingerprint sensor using the ultrasonic technology that's usually embedded in OLED displays is because this uses a, not a flexible OLED, but a tensile, like, um, what's it called? A, uh, I forget the term they use, but basically it's, it's not a flexible OLED. It's a tense OLED. Snappy Um, OLED. (laughs) Sure. Snappy OLED. So it can't be used in that situation. Therefore, they put it on the back as like what looks like a regular capacitive sensor, which defeats the purpose. But there you go. Yeah, I mean, this this whole thing, I mean, there's there are countless things like this in the spec sheet that just kind of don't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I get this isn't a regular consumer product, but this just seems like it's someone at, someone at Qualcomm was given a load of money and told to make their pet project. And this is what came out the other end. Well, and I mean... Qualcomm, I'm pretty sure Qualcomm is doing this because they've realized that, oh, other mobile chip manufacturers are catching up. We need to be a brand that people think about, be a brand that people want whenever they go out and buy a new smartphone. Now that we have like the Dimensity chips starting to compete and, and so on. I guess on. Google as well soon. Yeah, because we're about to have Google and Google will be able to market in that space because it's like, oh, it's a chip by Google and Google knows how to make that stuff. Although yeah. they're known for making it for servers, not for phones. So I'm trying to get this phone into Jerry's hands so that he can tear it apart and see what's underneath. Um, I look forward to that. It's going to throw it in a lake in, a, in like two or three months. You know this. Well, at least he'll have two or three months of tearing it apart and giving us uh, words on the site about it. So um, I'm looking forward to that. I should also be getting one as a review unit. So I'm, I'm kind of excited more for the earbuds than the phone, but that's besides the point. Um, and yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm. Not really sure what else to say about it. We'll review it. It's going to be weird. Um, something else weird and slightly inscrutable. The Motorola One 5G UW Ace. Just, let's just take a second there to digest that name. Uh, debuted on Verizon this week. God damn it, Motorola. I've already, forget, I've already forgotten the first half of that name. Right? Um, so not only is it a version of the Motorola One 5G that launched... Uh, sorry, it's the Motorola... It's the Motorola One 5G Ace that launched earlier this year, uh, made for Verizon phone, made for Verizon. But it also is the first phone that's debuting with Verizon's spatial audio codec thing. I don't. This is this came out of left field for me. Uh, it's called Verizon Adaptive Sound. It is basically Verizon's hardware or software-based version of Dolby. Atmos, essentially, which is the de facto spatial audio um, encoding that we know from Apple Music and uh, Deezer and 
Tidal and a whole bunch of other services, but this is across the entire operating system. So basically, when it's enabled, it will intercept all audio signals and add this spatial audio um, interpretation to it and then output it. We haven't heard it yet, but it's coming to all... Uh, it's coming to older Verizon models, specifically Motorola at first, and then I guess it will roll out to others over time as they get updated. I have no idea why Verizon is in this game. It really makes no sense to me. This is the last thing I would want my carrier to be putting on my phone. No, I mean, the number, like a lot of people don't understand people who watch like TV or movies on their phone whenever they're out and about because they're like, why would you watch something like that on a small screen and with tiny earbuds that can't produce proper surround sound? If you have this adaptive sound, if you have surround sound spatial audio, through your headphones on your phone, then that takes away a major argument against streaming whatever while you're out and about. And Verizon right. wants you to be able to play all these things because all those media formats take a lot more data and will burn and will hopefully burn through your data at a faster rate if you aren't on an unlimited plan. So it's a five it's a five G play essentially. It's Probably, it's a way yeah. for them to show off their five G network which I I suppose makes sense. It also ties into the bundling that they have with like the Disney Plus bundle and Apple Music bundle and all those other things. Again, it's about expertise. I have no issue if this is good and it's useful, but you don't think of your, you know, network, your carrier as a company that needs to be in the, it needs to be competing with Apple on spatial audio. Um, you know, what happens if you open Apple Music or Deezer and you have spatial audio enabled? Which one gets priority here? If it's enabled OS-wide, does this override the one that's built into your music streaming service? Does it interfere with it? It's just, it, that to me is where this gets dicey because Verizon has so much control over your software experience as the carrier, as the company that's issuing the software updates. I just have an issue where they're rolling this out. I, it's not an opt-out, so that's good. Um, I believe you do have to opt in to actually experience this. But I wouldn't put it past them to opt to, to put it to make it opt-out at some point in the future once it's more widely available. And then you get into these issues. I'm all for more adaptive sound profiles and ab- ability to use it across the complete spectrum of our mobile devices right now because adaptive sound uh the spatial audio we still only have like a couple of isolated places i still haven't even been able to use spatial audio on the uh the sony xm4s yet because the list of apps that were supported supported was so small yeah i guess so i mean again this comes back to if it's good i will i I will eat my hat and i will take back my words but i'm not particularly confident that it will be good because Verizon doesn't exactly have a track record of successful software endeavors. Verizon messages plus. <clears throat> so, <laughs> um, all right, let's, let's move on. Um, let's just go through these Samsung leaks. It feels like there are way more than we can keep up with every week. We spent a lot of time last week talking about them as well. Let's start with the galaxy S 21 FE because that's, I think, the one that we know the least about. Um, we now know that it will sport a very similar battery size to last year, 4,500 milliamps. 
It'll have a 6.4 inch display, which is actually smaller than the FE, the, the S20 FE, which kind of makes sense because I'm, as we spoke about last week, with the Galaxy S21 being so much cheaper than the S20, there's less of a reason for this to exist this year. And I feel like it might be Samsung under acknowledging that and sort of making this into a smaller, potentially even cheaper product that will not necessarily need to be competitive with the S21. It may not undermine the existence of the S21 the way that the S20 FE did with the S20, which at the time was like $300 more expensive. Alex, what's your take on the S21 FE and where it could exist in the market? It's a tricky one because, like you mentioned, there is this sort of conflict at the low end or lower end between the S21 FE and uh, the regular S21. Just as at the high end last year, you had the the two Ultras, right? The the S20 Ultra and, and the Note 20 Ultra. And um, in either case, it's kind of a little bit difficult for one to succeed without sort of deflating the other one. So, um, yeah, from what we know about it so far, it does seem like it's going to be... Um, uh, it's going to be a little bit smaller. Uh, the specs otherwise are going to be sort of largely in line with with what you would expect for that kind of device. Um, and yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the pricing for this when it arrives eventually and just how, uh, you know, whether it ends up sort of nudging the the, the vanilla S21 uh, out of contention there. The S21, the standard S21 kind of just got bumped down a little bit when they and uh, Samsung started selling refurbished S20s for like, 650 if you're buying outright, but it's like $50 with a trade-in. So that that's kind of hard to deny. I don't know. I mean, the S20 was kind of a dud. Like the whole series just in I retrospect felt like a bit S20. of a dud. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass. But I, I agree. I mean, I, I thought the S20 series was, a, it had it had its problems. The S20 Plus was great. The S20 was fine. It was just too expensive. So you're right. It's, I think it'll it'll probably be a very popular trade-in um, when you can get it for free if you trade in like an... If you have an S10 and you trade it in for a refurbished S20, you get it for free because they're giving you f- um, up to $650 on some of the older Samsung phones. Well, no, they're giving you up to $600. So you pay $50 and then you get $50 and Samsung.com promotional credit. Sure, fine. So, so if you, you have can, a, if you buy so an accessory, so if you need to buy fifty dollars worth of accessories, it's free. It ends up it ends up being in everybody's favor, right? Because Samsung gets a bit of money, the trade-in company gets a phone, and then you get a pair of earbuds or something. Um, or you can get a Samsung Smart Tag Plus that Alex reviewed on the site today, which sure, uh, yep. <laughs> was was actually I I really think it's quite interesting. I. I have not set mine up yet, so I might actually do that now that you've you've convinced me it's useful. All right, let's let's move on. Uh, we have the Galaxy Watch Four and Four Classic. Not a ton new here, other than the fact that it might come in three sizes: forty-two, forty-four, and forty-six. Three cal- three colors: gray, white, and black. Um, IP68 water and dust resistance. Two buttons on the side. I think the uh, more interesting thing is the price. So we're looking at about $399 for the regular Watch 4 and then $499 minimum for the Watch 4 Classic, which will have the rotating bezel. As we've talked about 
Many times, this will be the debut of the new Wear experience in the world. So it'll be the first device to launch with Wear OS 3.0. But other than that, yeah, I mean, it looks very much like any other Galaxy Watch. What do you guys think? I'm not digging that pricing because I'm... I'm buying whatever the I I don't know if they're going to have an active or if they're just going to have the Galaxy Watch 4 and the Watch 4 Classic, but if that's the case then I'm buying the Galaxy Watch 4 cuz I've wanted a Samsung I've wanted a watch active with uh Wear OS for 3 years and this is going to be that. So I I want to try that out cuz that that could rule the world. Um and yeah, 4 400 for the standard and 500 for the classic if i'm hearing you correctly that sounds like samsung milking the fact that they're going to be first and using it to cash in and i'm not sure how long that's going to last considering the pixel watch will presumably come out in october i think it, it we, we should be careful not to sort of overstate the appeal of of the new wear os for the average person right i mean these are going to be watches that primarily you're going to get with your uh, s21 fe or whatever you end up buying whether it's one of the new phones we're expecting or the foldables or your galaxy s21 ultra that you buy towards the end of uh, 2021 um that's you know that's where you get it basically for free on a contract with the phone if you spend enough money um in in terms of the uh the you know high sort of base retail price i think maybe it says more about what we can expect the technology in these watches to be like it's you know we don't often focus on um you know the just the the whether it's the screen or the the processor inside, um, what what that stuff can actually do, and um, you know, this is a new generation of wearable. Perhaps there is something that, uh, you know, there are going to be some surprises in terms of what this this device is capable of. Yeah, absolutely, I I, I agree with you there. Uh, also, we we can't necessarily convert euros to dollars, but oh, I mean, we is, is that where we're getting the U.S. prices from? Yeah, because yeah, okay, I'm only listing yeah. it in euros, and I'm just like, I feel like it's going to be 300 for the oh, okay. Watch 4 so, and 400 for the Classic. Unless, like, 300 and 400 makes sense. 400 and 500, that's yeah, a bit much. That's <laughs> what, what everyone forgets when you're converting from euro prices. You, listed euro prices and GBP prices always include um, VAT. So yep. basically, you've got to take that off. If you convert it without taking that off to get the US list price, it's always going to look way higher. So those would be the Canadian prices then, not the American. Ooh. <laughs> I'm sorry, Vader. I had to. I had to. Ouch. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I'm still looking at the WF-1000XM4s at 400 Canadian dollars. Just every day I go to the Amazon listing and I'm like, is today the day that I give in? But no, I have not yet given in. Um, we now, I mean, there's another leak on the Galaxy Buds 2 we know that they will have active noise canceling. I guess that's the only new tidbit since last week, um, which is great. I'm not expecting it to be very good given it's 99 or so dollar price, but at a hundred bucks, you have to include ANC these days. That goes with the nothing buds. I, we're not actually sure what they're going to be called yet, but nothing's first earbuds will have ANC. That's been confirmed. Nothing if you are not keeping up with this terribly named company is Carl Pay's offshoot um, from OnePlus. Carl Pay was a OnePlus co-founder, chief marketing officer for many years. Uh, he left last year, is now putting together a new company. Their first product is a pair of wireless earbuds. It'll be 100 bucks. It's coming out at the end of July, and it'll have ANC. That's basically all we know. 
other than the fact that it looks like it'll have a weird-ass design. Alex, what are your thoughts here? Do you think that there's potential for nothing to debut with like a mind-blowingly good earbud that will change the market? Or is this kind of a nothing burger? I think the quality of the product is almost completely irrelevant here, right? It's This is all about the brand. This is all about taking advantage of the the cachet that Carl Pay has built for himself through through his work at OnePlus. Um, you know, assuming the, the buds aren't, you know, as long as they re- reach that sort of minimal thresh- threshold of not being completely terrible, I think they'll basically succeed. This is about building the brand. That's why, you know, it has the weird name. It's going to have the weird design um, and there's this huge marketing push behind it. So, um, yeah, I think that's... As long that's as it the... doesn't have PixelBuds level of jank with its software, it'll do fine at $100. We can hope. We can hope. PixelBuds A have been good so far. So maybe it's the curse of being over $100. Maybe that $100 maybe. price point is like the sweet spot. Speaking of OnePlus, we have heard now it's official, the OnePlus Nord 2 will launch at the end of July. They have, uh, OnePlus has also confirmed that it will be powered by MediaTek's 6 nanometer Dimensity 1200. This is a, I don't think we've seen it in any other phone so far, but it will certainly mean that the Nord 2 will have a lower price point than an equivalent Qualcomm uh, powered phone. So Alex we're not expecting this to debut in North America. It'll probably be limited to Europe and the UK, as well as some other com- countries like uh, like India. But what are you expecting from this device? So the the teasers that we've seen so far are, um, you know, we had the slogan last year with the, the, the original Lord was pretty much everything you want um, at a really great price or something like that. This is everything you could want at you know, at a affordable price. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're probably looking at a, a reasonable spec bump up from the previous Nord, like relative to, to other sort of higher end and lower end phones. Other than that, I mean, we've, you know, we've been seeing leaks on, uh, on the chip that'll power it for, for several months, thanks to uh, our own, uh, Harish, uh, John Lagada. So, um, that's not come as too much of a surprise. Um, but I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely, there's that room in OnePlus's, um, lineup between the premium nine series and the the super cheap nords that get like one update and then go in a big dumpster um and um yeah that that's the the niche that the nords going to fill this year and i think um based on the chip that we that we know is going to have so far it's, it stands a decent chance of, of succeeding yeah i really liked the the first nord i thought it was great i think the fact that they didn't release it in north america spoke more to oneplus's burgeoning relationship with carriers and the fact that the carriers likely didn't want the Nord in in the market at its price point, given the fact that companies or that T-Mobile was trying to sell the OnePlus 8 at mm. a much higher price, which was a very similar phone. And then later the Nord N10 5G debuted on T-Mobile, which is also a low-cost 5G phone. But again, the Nord would have just eaten it for for lunch if, if you don't need 5G, which you don't. But since then, OnePlus is merged with Oppo. It's launched the N200 5G. So anything could happen. It may launch in North America, but I'm not holding my breath. Moving on to another bit of OnePlus news. This is really interesting. So our uh, fellow future-owned site, Anantech, did a deep dive into the OnePlus 9 uh, and 9 Pro's benchmarking and found out that OnePlus is basically turning off the 
performance chips in the Snapdragon 888 for some apps in order to save battery life. And this makes a, this kind of makes no sense if you look at phones, other phones powered by the Snapdragon 888, which don't need to resort to this kind of manipulation to save battery life. At the same time, OnePlus is saying that, um, you know, it's basically just doing everything it can to optimize user experience and that it's trying to be as, uh, even though it wasn't transparent about the fact that this manipulation exists, that most people did not notice real world issues with with their with the apps that were affected. But Alex, what do you think about this practice in general? This isn't necessarily them like powering those cores to 11 to get the highest scores in benchmarking. This is kind of the opposite problem. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit of what we saw with a lot of uh, Snapdragon 810 phones way back in the day where you just had a, a flawed chip that companies had to do all kinds of software gymnastics to make it run uh, cool enough and not to completely destroy the battery. This is a bit more nuanced, I think. Um, when the uh, the 9 Pro was first released, it had okay-ish battery life. It was fine. Um, we know they were, you know, over the course of the first couple of software updates, they wanted to um, improve battery life. And this is how you do it, right? You look at how people use their phones. You look at the apps. You look at what needs to be enabled uh, or, or not, or what can be disabled um, without... Um, a noticeable impact on on the app that you're using. Uh, I don't have that much of a problem with it. Um, I think uh, it, you know, a phone is obviously a different kind of device to a PC, a tablet. Uh, I think that you know that there are different lines in terms of what's acceptable when it comes to different kinds of performance um, there. So um, yeah, I don't I don't have any real issue with it. It's kind of um, it, it's pretty clear why they're doing it uh you could argue that it could be it should be a setting switch somewhere and that's fair enough i suppose but i'm not losing too much sleep over it yeah i think this this comes back to that philosophical conversation that i've had many times with juan carlos bagnell about our phones especially the high-end phones that we have powered by the top of the line snapdragon chips are way more powerful than we need for the average task, right? Opening up Chrome, opening up the, you know, Google Photos, scrolling through Instagram and Twitter does not need an X1 core engaged at all times. And this, what what this is doing, whatever script uh, OnePlus is running here is basically just, instead of throttling down those um, cores, it's just disabling them entirely for some purposes. And the only issue that I have there is, does that actually impact performance? Does it have a meaningful effect on, um, on, on like scrolling, consistency, app switching, multitasking, et cetera? And are they ramping up those cores quickly enough to compensate when that power is needed? And if those things are all being done, I wouldn't necessarily call this malfeasance i'm just i'm just calling this optimization now i don't want to defend oneplus here because i think that they should have disclosed this um there should have been a battery optimization setting that people could turn on if they were noticing battery shortage issues right that's the thing the other part of it is that i think oneplus was desperate to fix an overheating problem 
that was getting out of control. Not because so many people's OnePlus 9s and 9 Pros were overheating, but because the media narrative around it was kind of ramping up. We we heard a lot of people in on Reddit and in the OnePlus forums complaining about overheating. And it's one of those things where we don't know if the absolute number was very high or that the people it was affecting were just very loud about it. But either way, I think this was done probably as a way to get those people to stop posting. So what you're and, saying is it's Michael Fisher's fault. <laughs> well, it's Harish's fault too. Because <laughs> he wrote about it as well. And and to be fair, like that, that's a legitimate problem. But I don't know if like this is this is OnePlus's fault. I'm not putting the blame on anybody but OnePlus. They should have been more transparent about it. But the reality is that a Snapdragon 888 is too powerful is not too powerful, is more than powerful enough to run Twitter and Chrome and Instagram with the four efficient efficiency cores in the Snapdragon 888. Like, it just is. Yeah, you don't, so, you don't need an X1 to scroll through your tweets. <laughs> Unless the tweets are that good, or that bad, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. We're, we're going we're, we're gonna to see what happens they're going to issue an update, obviously turning this off because they have to. And um, this is this is what they're saying. Um, As a result of this feedback, our R&D team has been working over the past few months to optimize the device's performance when using many of the popular apps, including Chrome, by matching the app's processor requirements with the most appropriate power. This has helped to provide a smooth experience while reducing power consumption while this may impact the device's performance in some benchmarking apps, our focus is always to do what we can to improve the performance of the device for our users. So there you go. This is an interesting one. You know, it's about who's in charge here. Is it the user or is it the OEM? It, you know, who should have more power, more control over over the user experience? It's like or, or the app that, developer, right? They have well, that's, no, yeah. that's fair. Yeah, they absolutely. have no say really if if they get put on this list of. Uh apps that need to be throttled. Um, yeah, that, that's actually that's actually a really good point, Alex, right? Like what happens if a company, you know, like a, an app that, like TikTok, for instance, right? What, what happens if you end up getting a situation where TikTok complains to OnePlus because people are complaining that TikTok is slow and they're like, what the hell is happening? It's only working, it's only on OnePlus phones. And then people complain to the app developer, not necessarily to OnePlus. So... Yeah, you're right. It, this is all about disclosure and about about giving people the choice. Uh, let us know actually what you think about this because I'm I'm curious, you all listening, uh, if you have an opinion on it. Send uh, an email podcast at Android Central or tweet us. You can tweet at Journey Dan at uh, Alex Doby or at Ara Wagco or at GB Hill because I'm sure even though Jerry's not here, he'd love to hear about it. Um, let's take a break and we will come right back and talk about this uh, Google Play Store lawsuit. Nothing moves faster than the speed of light, but hiring with Indeed comes awfully close. When you can't wait to find great talent, you need Indeed. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes 
are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed Instant Match helps you make a short list of great candidates fast. The moment you sponsor a job, you get a list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description. Then you can invite them to apply right then. Indeed helps you hire great people fast. Plus, Indeed makes finding quality candidates even faster with 135 assessments to help make sure you find applicants with the right skills. Best of all, you only pay for applicants who meet your must-have qualifications. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash ACP. That's a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash ACP. Indeed.com slash ACP offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so we'll we'll touch on this pretty quickly because there's a lot to unpack, but also it's early days and we may not have the full story until later um, later this year. But basically, New York once again is leading co-leading a coalition of, of a lot of states. There are 37 states that are suing Google over monopolistic and anti anti-competitive practices, specifically related to the Play Store and billing. And what they're saying is that Google is exercising a monopoly in how it deals with developers and how it forces developers to use their Google Play Store billing system, which also requires them to take a 30% cut. Isn't it 15 now? Well, it, it's 15 for the first year. Uh, it's 15% per year for the first million. And then for the first million dollars and then increases to 30% after that. Now, this lawsuit comes at, just as Google is about to start enforcing play billing for all in-app purchase categories. It gave, it back in September of 2020, it gave developers a one-year warning to say that if you're not currently using Play Store billing, as of September 2021, we will force you to use it even if you don't want to. And um, that has been pretty contentious, although Google posits that it doesn't really affect a lot of developers. So this lawsuit sort of goes deep into why it's why it's Google that's being affected here and not necessarily Apple, which is being scrutinized on its own through the Epic, Epic lawsuit. But what, by Google saying that it's the most popular OEM, it's the most popular um, mobile operating system in the world, it forces its partners like Samsung, OnePlus, et cetera, into these very secretive deals that basically prevents them from installing third-party app stores, even though Google is contending that Android 12 will make it easier for third-party app stores to exist, coexist with the Play Store. You know, it's there's a lot going on in this in this lawsuit, but ultimately it's about Google exerting too much power in um, in its own ecosystem. And by virtue of that, preferencing its own services. So for example, we've heard this a lot on the App Store side, but it applies to the Play Store as well. Spotify, if you want to pay for a Spotify subscription within the app, Spotify has to give 30% um, to Google because obviously it's making more than a million dollars, so it'll have to give 30%. Uh, But Google obviously does not have that same problem with with YouTube Music 
uh, which it it offers as well. It it actually pre-installs YouTube Music on every Android phone as well. So there are a lot of moving pieces here. But I want to come to you, Ara. When you think about this lawsuit as a um, as an effective highlight of Google's power, when you've heard so much about Apple over the last few months, what do you make of this? Well, I'm first going to say that I like that Google is going to enforce of all purchases you make on your phone need to go through us if you if it's installed through Google Play. I like that for two reasons. One, it means that if I subscribe to something, I can unsubscribe even if I don't have the app installed any longer. But also it gives me a singular, okay, if I'm accidentally going to buy something in this app, I'm going to see that white or gray box, depending if I have light or dark theme enabled. And it's going to be like, okay, you're about to buy something. And that makes it easier for me to say, oh, nope, I don't actually need that. Pass. So I, I like I like it from a stability and accountability standpoint, because it makes it easy to go back and say, OK, I have spent. Yes, I've spent that much in that up. Yes, I spent that much in that map. I didn't mean to do that, but I paid for it. So whoops, it's it's one of those things of I get why it's monopolistic. I also think that they did it for a reason. Well, of course they did. They wanted to maintain a monopoly over the distribution of apps on Android phones. I mean that they monopolies exist for a reason because they they don't want to allow smaller companies or or competitors to make inroads into a closed ecosystem. And the argument here is that in spite of Google's insistence that it is an open ecosystem, they are doing everything they can to keep it closed. Well, while Google keeps insisting Android is a free and open system, they're strictly referring to AOSP. And AOSP is not what runs on the vast majority of Android phones in the United States. Because we use GMS Android. Right. And which is privy to a ton of backdoor deals, as we've heard over the years through various lawsuits as well. And and I think that's what ultimately this comes down to, is that with this lawsuit, we're going to see a ton of documentation and discovery around some of the deals that Google has made with with its partners. Yeah, I, I do have to wonder, because if memory serves, Google doesn't actually make as much from the Play Store and Play Store billing as it does from other avenues. I feel like at some point, Google just needs to back down on some or all of this just so that way they A, quit getting caught and quit getting bad press, but B, they also don't end up under as much scrutiny because they're already under scrutiny for so much other stuff that does seriously warrant investigation. And we're already seeing them trying to get ahead of that a little bit with um, some of the new changes in Android 12, right? With the way that um, third-party app stores can be a little yeah. bit more equal to the Play Store in terms of like ease of updating and stuff like that. So um, yeah, they're definitely aware of that and, and steering Android in, in a direction to uh, you know, potentially try and get them out of jams like this in the uh, future. Also, I mean, don't most, I mean, Samsung phones come with the Samsung store. Don't, LG phones came with an LG store. Don't most manufacturers put a technically third-party app store on their phones? Well, I mean, LG isn't making phones anymore. Samsung uh, still does. This is true. Um, I I can't think of any other significant ones in the West. No, because Motorola is pretty much vanilla android at this point yeah is uh, the same way huawei t- you know huawei would would have you believe they're not even android anymore and uh, an lg <laughs> isn't making phones anymore so 
I want to I want to just highlight a couple of things that the lawsuit points out, and some of it is I think new information or at least uh, revisiting information in a in a sort of 2021 light. Google, I don't think a lot of people understand just how just the length the lengths that Google goes to disincentivize users from sideloading or installing third-party app stores. And what this is uh, lawsuits contending is that not only does Google make that process difficult, even though it's it's making it easier in Android 12, probably as a direct threat of lawsuits like this, but it does not allow the distribution of third-party app stores within the Play Store, which I don't think we really ever think about here, but like F-Droid could never just be an app inside the Play Store because that's not allowed. And that's something that this contends maintains Google's monopolistic power because 90% of all money exchanged in the Android ecosystem is done over the Play Store itself. Um, Google uh, actually went to Samsung. So this says, Google has focused its anti-competitive strategies on Samsung, the largest manufacturer of Android devices sold in the U.S., Google has taken the extraordinary step of attempting to buy off Samsung to limit competition from the Galaxy App Store by, among other things, offering incentives for Samsung to turn the Galaxy Store into a mere white label for the Play Store, meaning that Samsung would use the back-end services of the Play Store, including Play Billing, while maintaining its Galaxy Store branding. Um, Google launched incentive programs to share monopoly profits with large app developers that might be capable of disrupting Google's app distribution monopoly. So basically saying to big developers, hey, if you ever think about offering your own, uh, like leaving the Play Store and offering your own billing, because you obviously can sideload on Android, unlike that of iOS, we will pay you literally to stop doing that or not do that, uh, which is kind of interesting. There's just so many other points here. Alex, I'm wondering, this goes a lot further than we've seen before on how Google is trying to maintain that hold on consumers. And yet we've heard time and time again that Google makes a lot less money from the Play Store than Apple does on the App Store, that Google is more open, that it it welcomes competition in the form of the Fire, you know, the, that Amazon's Fire Store or F-Droid or any number of other ways to distribute apps, even Samsung's own store. What do you make of all this? So, I mean, it comes down to control and um, and freedom, basically. Uh, you have this sliding scale in terms of app store app stores and access to installing stuff on your devices. Obviously, the uh, the biggest extreme in terms of control is is Apple, where you know the door is completely slammed shut, nothing can get in. It's Apple's walled garden. Um, with the Google Play situation, obviously, you have a the sort of the door is sort of slightly open a crack that lets you in- install stuff from third-party stores, you know, lets you install third-party stores themselves. Um, but but there are there are d- differing reasons to um to have that control. So on the one hand, it is it can be about security, and that's certainly one of the reasons why you can't just stick your own app store on the Play Store. It's it certainly has to do with uh you know billing is a part of that as well, right? You don't want um an app on there that just hoovers up um credit card details that you know, perhaps, uh, you know, would be doing something untoward with them. Um, uh, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, Google does have oversight of apps on there anyway. So, um, yeah, to me, the more interesting things are the interactions with Samsung, um, you know, this potential to have 
the Galaxy Store is just a white label front for for the Play Store. Super interesting, I think, and yeah, does does speak to to Google sort of strong strong arming there a little bit. Um, but when we talk about um, you know Android needing to be open or you know Android, Google needs to present Android in a way that is more open. Well, there is of course uh, that you know the security uh, and user experience argument there to a certain extent is valid. The 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 argument that Apple uses in that same way. Um, so I think it's, it's down to where, where do you draw the line in terms of that balance and what other potentially monopolistic things are happening, um, you know, to, to further aggravate that. And it's a, it's a really difficult, um, point to come down on. Yeah. And to its point, Google is saying that it, it, it's blog post really goes on the defensive saying that, well, we are more open than Apple and we've welcome competition from the likes of Amazon and Samsung and, and and other big companies. But what it's not saying is that those companies are already partners of Google. They're well leveraged. They don't need the money necessarily that comes from that that would come from independence from Play Store billing. And that this that the remedies that the um, plaintiffs are asking for are not what Google is is really touting as like its advantages over Apple. What Google is saying is or what what the what the lawsuit is contending is that Google is way more underhanded than it appears in real life. That it's making all these backroom deals so that it can maintain the image of openness while also maintaining uh, while also uh, ensuring its Play Store uh, distribution dominance, and I think that is what is so interesting about this lawsuit is that it it just opens up this this door that Google is actually the bad guy here, even if Android compared to iOS is much more open in the traditional like quote open source sense. I mean, both of those statements can be true, but also the real way that. Google puts other manufacturers and whoever that want to do GMS-less Android, the real way it squeezes them is by Google Play Services is a great service. It does a lot of things, but it also means that so many of the like core functionalities of Android, like timely notifications and other things like that, they're in Google Play Services. So if you want to put your app on a device that doesn't have GMS, that means you have to completely recode parts of your app. And a lot of developers don't want to do it. Yeah, yeah. And you have to convince developers to actually get on board with that. And even we've seen even a company as large as, as Huawei has had real trouble doing that. Yeah, that's that's the real antitrust thing that people need to go after here. It's like the billing is something. Yes, it's fine. It's financial, which means that it's easy to get headlines out of it. But it's not the real problem here. Right. And we've heard about this, this deal that companies are forced to make with Google if they want to distribute the Play Store, they have to access, um, they have to allow access to the Play, to play services and, and, and mobile services. And they have to include other Google apps. And what's, what's interesting is that The Verge got access to some a, a Facebook survey that was done by Comscore. This is a weird one. That basically says, it goes through all of the top apps on each um, platform, iOS and Android. And what what is unsurprising about it is that most of the top apps are the ones that are default apps. They are Gmail on 
on, on Android. They are uh, Google Play, Google Search, YouTube, Google Maps, Drive, Photos, Contacts, Camera, right? The first non-Facebook, non-Google app um, on that list is Amazon, right? Uh, then there's the Samsung Calculator. Then there's Instagram, another Facebook app. Then Google Calendar, Google Clock. Pandora is the only one here that seems to be an aberration. I still refuse to believe that Pandora deserves to be on that list. There cannot be that many Pandora subscribers in 2020, 2021. I would, I mean, don't put it past Pandora. They are a, they are basically radio. They're internet radio for millions of people. Anyway, we're not talking about Pandora here. Um, but that is just, it's not surprising. Similarly on iOS, the issue is even more pronounced on iOS because Apple does not allow default apps to be changed except for two categories. And you're looking at the default apps on, on iOS phone, weather, photos, camera, clock, messages, calculator, app store. That's the top eight. And then there's YouTube, which is hilarious. And then Apple News, Apple Calendar, the mainline Facebook app, Apple Mail, FaceTime, Find My Phone, and then Amazon. Again, Apple Stocks, Notes, and Instagram and Gmail. So like, there are two Google apps that are used most on iOS, but on Android, that number is much higher, obviously. So it's like people don't really change the default apps they use. That reinforces the incentive for people just to open the Play Store and find apps that way, even if the alternatives are available to them. Well, the other thing to look at here is if you look at the actual percentages or the numbers in each of these graphs, you see how quickly it falls off on Google compared to on the uh, on the Apple side. Because on the Apple side, it's like 90, 89, 85, 85. It doesn't get down to 70% until you're It's one, not two, 70%. Three. It's millions of active users per yes, month. Yes, that's true. Yes. But on the Google side, you get to 70 within the first five apps, and then it drops from 70 to 40 over the course of the next five or seven. I, I see what you're saying, but I, d- I don't think that is a f- argument in favor of Google here. No, because even I've, though the absolute numbers are lower, which gives the Android argument like a longer tail, it's still dominated by Google apps and services. At the top, yes. But I also think that because that those numbers aren't as high as a- Apple's are because are because you can set d- uh, other apps for most of these things rather easily. I mean, granted, right. there's YouTube is YouTube. There's a reason it's high on both of them. It's the most popular video platform in the world. There's no replacing it. But for like maps and drive and photo, like drive and photos being as low as they are compared to Apple photos and Apple camera, that is telling in how easy it is to swap to a different photo app or swap to a different camera app. I think easy is is the word here that is doing a lot of work. Like I don't think it's easy especially when OEMs have defaulted to Google Photos over their own solutions. It's not like OEMs are going out of their way to use like, you know, whatever third-party photo gallery app or something because the app developer, you know, wants a payday and it's a better product. Google Photos is just the default solution. Google has the leverage there. It can say, hey, like we want to work with you on making Google Photos the default app. How can we make that happen? Google is always has a seat at the table. Random small developer that may have a better gallery app does not have a seat at the table. And that's been the way, that way for many, many years. All right, let's, let's put a, a pin in this because lots more will come out in the next couple of weeks and months 
I'm very interested to see what form this, this lawsuit takes, takes and if it does go to trial. Um, the document itself is pretty heavy. It's uh, how many pages? It's 114 pages, and it's uh, it's it's got it's quite redacted, at least in in some of the later sections. But the intro is worth reading, and I actually recommend that if you are interested in learning about the lawsuit, you seek it out because um, it's it's quite fascinating. So go seek that out. It's on our website if you want to find it. Um, and yeah, let us know what you think about it. All right, let's go and uh, change gears here and do uh, what's making us happy this week. Alex, I will start with you. Uh, I think I know, but maybe I'm wrong. What's making you happy this week? <laughs> uh, well, I, I was going to go for the obvious one, um, which would be England reaching the the final in, in Euro 2020. But um, I usually sort of highlight um, like YouTube channels and, and content and stuff in, in this bit. So um, instead, I'm going to drop a recommendation uh, for Travelers on Netflix, uh, which we we recently sort of binged through the entire thing. There's uh, three series of it, and it's effectively it's it's quite a high concept um, sci-fi time travel kind of thing. Um, and, um, yeah, that's, that's all I'll really say without spoiling too much. But if you're, if you're into that kind of thing, it is definitely a, a binge worthy series and you can blast through, uh, three, three seasons of it pretty quickly on, on Netflix. So highly recommended. All right. Thank you, Alex. That's travelers on Netflix. Ara, what is making you happy this week? Uh, Android auto. Cause I am making my usual summer pilgrimage back to Texas and I'm driving a thousand miles by myself and android auto is the best co-pilot you could ask for amen i love i love android auto it is no so much better to than reach CarPlay. over and tap CarPlay. anything i can use google assistant for all the commands yep here here all right well what's making me happy this week um after months of waiting i finally got all of the components together for my first custom mechanical keyboard build um it is based on the GMMK Pro, the glorious um, machine pro. I, I forget the company's name. Um, I think the company's glorious PC Master Race or something. It's a, it's a t- pretty bad name for a company, in my opinion. But um, anyway, this is the GMMK Pro. It's a very good, solid, um, hot swappable keyboard. I thought it would be harder than it was. It really was as as complicated as plugging in a bunch of switches and then plugging in a bunch of um, keycaps and and configuring it, but it was very satisfying and it's probably the beginning of a very expensive hobby uh, because I've already started thinking about how I can mod this thing and I've looked into it and it's very pricey to do that. So if you're interested, I have a photo on um, my, my Instagram. I also... Uh, we'll we'll tweet it because I, I I think I don't know this is just it's it's fun I I really enjoy it and uh, if you have any mechanical keyboard favorites send them my way at Journey Dan I would love to hear them so that's it for the show uh, you can find Alex as I said at Alex Doby you can find Ara at Ara Wagco you can find me at Journey Dan we will be back next week with another episode until then thank you so much go England and we will uh, talk to you next week bye bye see you later bye.